In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, a woman dies and goes to heaven to the pearly gates and meets St. Peter. And uh, she says to him, okay, so what's the deal? What do I have to do to get in? And uh, St. Peter says, well, you have to spell a word. Oh, okay, well, what's the word? Love. Oh, okay, so the woman correctly spells love and is welcomed into heaven and it's absolutely glorious. And uh, just marvelous. Anyway, six months later, St. Peter has some errands to run and he, he finds the woman and he says, you know, would you mind being on duty on the gates today because I'm a bit tied up? She said, well, of course, I'd, I'd be glad to. So there she is at the gates of heaven, and, well, she's in for quite a surprise because her husband arrives. And she says, oh, wow, fancy seeing you. Uh, how's, how have you been? How's everything gone? And uh, he says, oh, well, I've had a fantastic time since you died. I married that beautiful young nurse that took care of uh, you while you were ill. I won the lottery, and I've been traveling around the world, actually, until today. Oh, uh, I see, said the woman. Anyway, how do I get in? What, what's the deal? She says, well, you, um, you have to spell a word. Oh, okay, well, what's the word? Uh, Czechoslovakia. <laughs> today we continue in our 10 Tough Questions series with our topic today appropriately on this All Saints Sunday, Heaven, Is It Real? Jokes about heaven and standing at the pearly gates are to a penny and have probably been around for a very long time. The Sadducees that we encounter in our gospel reading this morning no doubt had their own jokes about heaven, not that they believed in it. In Matthew 22, we find the Sadducees spinning a rather ridiculous story. It has almost a fairy tale ring to it. You know, once upon a time there were seven brothers bashful, dopey, sleepy, okay, not quite, but it seems the Sadducees were out to try and make the very idea of life after death as something silly, something unbelievable, and cleverly, because they were clever, they quoted an ancient biblical text that did provide for a family line to be perpetuated by a widow marrying her dead husband's brother, but they took it to absurdity. And what they had failed to understand was that with the coming of Jesus and his kingdom and the good news of the gospel, membership in the family of God wasn't determined by ethnic origin or tribal identity. All of those barriers have been broken down in Jesus. But they weren't interested in any of that. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, and they want to make Jesus look foolish. Of course, uh, they more than met their match in Jesus, for he deals with their little story rather bluntly. First, Jesus says, you're wrong. <laughs> and then he tells them why. He tells them that they're ignorant of the scriptures, and they're ignorant of the power of God. And that must have stung a bit because they rather prided themselves on knowing the scriptures or at least the first five books of the Old Testament. But they had rejected the widely held Jewish belief in the resurrection. 
But Jesus taught that when God raises people to new life, everything will be radically different. Jesus says that those who are resurrected will experience a different kind of life, a life in which there won't be marriage, there won't be the need to have children to keep families going, because there will be no more death. Jesus says in the resurrection they will be like angels. By the way, note that carefully. He doesn't say they will become angels, nor does he say that they will be in heaven with the angels. Or in other words, in the resurrection, they will become different from what they are now. And what emerges from this is that the Sadducees, and I suspect a great many people today, Christians and non-Christians alike, have completely misunderstood what awaits people after death. Now, I must acknowledge this morning that when we speak of life after death, um, we have to be careful that we're not overly dogmatic. There is, of course, a certain tentativeness about what we say, and there's room for Christians to disagree. And, um, you know, if you want to disagree with me, I'd be happy to talk with you after. Um, But seriously, there, there are matters that we cannot have complete certainty about. But it's not that we all just get to make it up whatever we think goes, because the Bible does have some pretty clear teaching about what we can expect, what we can look forward to. Today, of course, there's no shortage of books and articles and stories about heaven. Indeed, just uh, three weeks ago, some of you may have seen it on the front cover of Newsweek magazine. It proclaimed, heaven is real, a doctor's experience of the afterlife. And inside, you can read the story of Dr. Eben Alexander, an academic neurosurgeon, a teacher at Harvard Medical School and other universities. And he writes about his near-death experiences some five years ago when he was in a coma for seven days. Now, Dr. Alexander describes... Anybody read it? A few of you. Okay. Describes a a rather ethereal, disembodied experience, complete with puffy clouds and a feeling of all being well. Now, I'm not doing justice to what he's written, but the heaven he describes doesn't particularly make me want to go there, wherever there is. But I have to tell you that as I've been uh, preparing for this sermon over the past few weeks, I've been increasingly excited and inspired by what I've rediscovered in the scriptures and what I've been reading. You know, as a a kid, I I never really cared very much for heaven. I, I was afraid of being bored. You know, I thought it might be like being in church, but forever. You know, actually, this morning I did wonder if it might be like one of those processionals that you can't get out of. It just keeps going. Now, I, I do a bit better now with uh, long services, but, but forever? Surely that wasn't what we were created for. Well, no. As N.T. Wright puts it, the point of Christianity isn't to go to heaven when you die. That's, that's not the whole story. No, God has in mind something much greater than that. In the end, God is going to put the whole creation to rights because it's been messed up. He's not going to scrap it. He's going to do something about it. The big picture of the way things really are in the biblical narrative doesn't end up with God's people as disembodied spirits playing on uh, 
celestial harps on celestial clouds. No, the big picture begins with the God of the universe creating the world, a creation that is marked by beauty and purpose, culminating, of course, in the creation of human beings. And, of course, we know the story. Sadly, it's not long before man disobeys God. And with the fall, those things that were good, like work, become toil. Relationships between a man and a woman get spoiled, and they are at enmity with each other. All these things that were good become spoiled and marred by sin. This is what God is doing something about. And as the story unfolds, we see that God calls a people to be a light to the nations, to show the world that there is redemption and restoration, that there is hope and forgiveness and healing. I'm going to take you through the whole Bible, but it won't take long. Don't worry. Um, And though time and time again, God's people choose to follow their own wills rather than God's will. And yet he is relentless in his pursuit of his people. As a lover pursues his beloved, so God seeks after his people. And the story climaxes in the sending of Jesus to deal once and all with the problem of sin and death. And through Jesus, we have access to God. All creation is groaning for that consummation when everything is put right. And through what Jesus did on the cross, which is more than just your individual personal salvation. It's bigger than that. So that things that are broken can be restored. Life that begins now and continues through the gate of death until we, like Jesus, can be bodily resurrected. And by the time we get to the very closing chapters of the Bible, we see that in the end, God is making all things new. Just as God was at home in the Garden of Eden at the beginning, so at the end, the home of God is once again amongst people on earth. Not quite what you might be used to hearing. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his people, and God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning will be no more. Crying will be no more, for the first things have passed away. That's what we read. That's what we heard from Revelation. And the context of all this, well, it's a new heaven and a new earth. As we heard earlier, John writes, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. These pictures from Revelation paint A story not of us leaving and going up to heaven, but rather of the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven to earth. This is a glorious picture. A picture of the whole creation being put to rights. Our God is a God of justice, of righteousness, and our Lord reigns. Earth and heaven were were meant to overlap with one another, not, not partially and mysteriously as they do at the moment, but completely and wonderfully. As the prophet Isaiah declared long ago, the earth shall be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. This is the promise that reverberates through the scriptures from beginning to end. 
As N.T. Wright puts it, the great drama will end not with saved souls being snatched up to heaven away from the wicked earth and the mortal bodies which have dragged them down into sin, but with the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth so that the dwelling of God is with humans. God's plan is not to abandon this world, the world which he made and said was good. Rather, he intends to remake it. And when he does... He will raise his people to new bodily life, more real, more tactile than we know now, not disembodied spirits. This is the promise of the Christian gospel. And this is what all are invited to step into. But not everyone will. And all are not compelled to be with God like this. You know, in um, Jesus' day, there was tremendous uh, respect for the name of God so that most people wouldn't dream of saying the name of God or writing the name of God. And so often they would talk about heaven when they wanted to talk about God. Jesus did this. He spoke about the kingdom of heaven. He spoke about people sinning against heaven. So we have to be careful in how we think of this word heaven. Now, Jesus also affirmed Heaven as as a real dimension of God's creation, where God's will and only God's will is done. Heaven, then, is real, but it might not be quite what we thought it was. It is the realm where things are as God intends them to be. And so for Christians, heaven is certainly a real comfort now and when we die. So in the present, we can know and experience the rule and reign of God as we go about our life before death. And then, when we die, we can expect to be with God, with Christ, in the place where he is in heaven. And various metaphors are used in the scriptures to say what this state will be. Sometimes when we die, it talks about us being at peace or at rest or asleep or in paradise. You remember when Jesus was crucified and one of the thieves on the cross next to him, Jesus is asking to be remembered in his kingdom. And what, I, what Jesus actually says is, today you'll be with me where? In paradise. But at that point, Jesus had not been resurrected. No, this is something slightly different. So after heaven... After paradise comes that great day, the day when the trumpet shall sound, the day when the dead shall be raised. Those that are asleep in paradise, in heaven, will be raised to final judgment that Josh talked about two weeks ago. That, then, is the beginning of what Bishop Wright calls life after, life after death. That's the hope of the bodily resurrection we have as Christians. Now, I preached this at 9 o'clock, and somebody afterwards came up to me and said, you know, I've never heard this before, which always makes preach a little bit nervous in case I'm completely off track. But, you know, this is not actually a novel teaching. Um, We sang basically this in our opening hymn for all the saints because um, the first few verses are about life before death, fighting the well-fought fight. It's about confessing the name of Jesus. 
Um, and then we get echoes of a, of, of a distant triumph. In uh, verse 4, we've got the blessed communion, the kind of communion of saints, those who have gone before. And then in verse 5, when the strife is fierce, the warfare long, steals on the ear the distant triumph song, and hearts are brave again. We're encouraged by those who've gone before. And then, but so where are they, those that have gone before? Well, verse 6 says, the golden even, evening brightens in the west. Soon, soon to faithful warriors cometh rest. Sweet is the calm of paradise, the blessed. And verse 7, I think we were finally making it our way up here by verse 7. Um, but lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day. The saints, those that have been in paradise, those that have been in re at rest, rise in bright array. There's the resurrection. And the king of glory comes. Do you see it? This hope for eternal life, which begins in the present and goes on into the future and will culminate in the resurrection, is rather radical. It's not new, but it's radical. The real reason the Sadducees were opposed to Jesus with their theological arguments and silly stories about women with seven husbands was that they knew that the doctrine of the resurrection was a threat to their power base. Wright puts it this way. It meant that God was turning the world upside down. And people who believe that God will turn the world upside down, people like Mary with her Magnificat, pulling down the mighty from their thrones and exalting the humble and meek, are not going to be backward in getting on with some world-changing activities in the present. It isn't that, like suicide bombers, people who believe in the resurrection are more cheerful about dying for the cause because they're happy to leave this world and escape to a glorious future. It is rather that people who believe in the resurrection, people who believe in God making a whole new world in which everything will be set right at last, are unstoppably motivated to work for that in the present. You know, when I was growing up, there used to be a saying that some people were so heavenly-minded that they were of no earthly use. And other people were so earthly-minded that they were no, of no heavenly use. But I think God wants us to be mindful of both. To be mindful of heaven, his rule, and earth where we now dwell. Indeed, isn't that exactly what Jesus taught us to pray? Thy will be done where? On earth, as it is in heaven. On this All Saints Sunday, as we remember with thanksgiving the saints who have gone before us, ask God to give you a fresh glimpse of heaven now so that you can live as those who are preparing for that future day, for that resurrection, and for that day when God will make all things new. You know, it is hard for us to see this. I know. St. Paul knew that. Listen to what he says about this, as translated by Eugene Peterson. We don't yet see things clearly. We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist. But it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then. 
See it all as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly as he knows us. Last week, when I was in England, driving across country roads to visit my father in the hospital, that verse rang very true for me. You know, physically, it it rained just about every day. I mean, I know it's not terribly unusual, it is England. Um, But I, I was literally squinting through the windshield, peering through the mist. And I could tell it was quite beautiful, but it wasn't very easy to see terribly much. But one day, the sun came out, and all of a sudden, the grey landscape was transformed into glorious colour, and the vista before me was amongst the finest scene you can expect to see of England's beautiful countryside in the Cotswolds. That was a wonderful picture for me of how things really are. When you or I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, we can be reminded of the truth that what we see and experience is not all that there is. For there is indeed a day coming when there will break a yet more glorious day when the saints triumphant will rise in bright array. You know, the the Celts used to talk about thin spaces between heaven and earth. But if you think about it, for Jesus, who is the forerunner of our resurrection, the, one who, the only one who has been resurrected to this new eternal life, for him everywhere is a thin space. And thank God that we get to experience some of these thin spaces now. We get to experience, I think, glimpses of heaven on a regular basis. I think there's something very special about worshiping God together here, as we are doing today, right now, in this place. Now, of course, we could worship God in any place, in a storefront or a warehouse, in homes, and that would be real and might bring all sorts of unexpected blessings. But there's something special about sacred spaces. I'm grateful that we get to gather in this place where prayers and incense and praise and worship have been offered up for more than a hundred years. And over there is the columbarium where the remains of loved ones are interred, a reminder of the saints who have gone before us, who now are part of that great cloud of witnesses that surround us, spurring us on to run with perseverance the race that is set before us as we look to Jesus the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And today, in this veritable feast for our senses, we see the colors of the stained glass. We smell the incense. We touch one another as we share the peace. We taste the bread and the wine. We hear the sounds of the organ and the instruments and the voices. And there's more in the heaven and earth reality that is ours in the kingdom of God, there are more than those five senses. The philosophical scientists who talk about, you know, 11 senses and string theory, that's all above my pay grade. But um, I want to talk to you about where we get to experience some of these extra senses, and it's in the sacraments, in the sacraments of baptism and Eucharist that we will celebrate this morning. They're a great example 
of the closeness and the overlap of heaven and earth. For in these holy mysteries, God makes himself known to us in ways that go beyond our normal senses and thinking. What do I mean by that? Well, I could talk about it and I could do my best to explain it in words, and sometimes I do, but not today. The sacraments are a mystery. And that's not a cop-out. It's, it's more like a dancer who, when asked what her dance means, replies, if I could say it, I wouldn't need to dance it. So then, heaven, is it real? Oh yes, it's real. Come, taste and see. And there's so much more to look forward to. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, and the greatest of these is love.